0: Welcome to this Pure Voice activity. To access the entire activity, including downloadable slides and transcript, go to www.peervoice.com forward slash TUZ. This activity is supported by an independent educational grant from Bayer AG. Welcome to this Pure Voice activity on chronic kidney disease and type 2 diabetes. This activity comprises a series of six streaming episodes with Dr. George Backris. At any time during this presentation, you may download supporting materials and share this activity with colleagues. Hello, I'm Professor George Backris from the University of Chicago Medicine. Welcome to this activity entitled Step-by-Step Setting a Course for Managing CKD and Type 2 Diabetes with Non-steroidal MRAs. In the next six short episodes... I will explore the options and issues when treating patients with type 2 diabetes and CKD based on a patient case scenario. During this first presentation, I will address the importance of prompt detection of CKD in a patient with type 2 diabetes. Okay, this is Dora, a 51-year-old African-American woman. She comes in with complaints of urinating more at night, getting up three to four times. On her physical exam, she's hypertensive at 164 over 96 with a pulse rate of 84. And she does have a soft systolic murmur. Her family history is positive for her father having hypertension, hyperlipidemia, and had an MI at age 64 and recovered with three stints. Her mother has diabetes and hypertension and CKD, and she has siblings with diabetes. One of them also has CKD. Her GFR is 44. Her UACR is 675, and her hemoglobin A1C is 8.4. Also, her LDL cholesterol is 131, and her triglycerides are elevated at 273, with a hemoglobin of 12. Her only medication is five milligrams of lisinopril, which she was given seven years ago for mild hypertension. She was also told to lose weight, and she does have she had at that time borderline diabetes. So, diabetes is a leading cause of CKD. Followed by hypertension, and together they account for about 72% of people on dialysis in the world. If you look at early detection of patients with CKD and type 2 diabetes, it is critical to not only make the diagnosis early, inform the patient so they can work with you, and properly diagnose it with UACR and estimated GFR. You need both to make the proper diagnosis, and this needs to be checked annually in the beginning when kidney function is normal and more frequently as kidney function deteriorates. So you have to do this. You also have to monitor the diabetes. Now, this is essential to have in your office and show the patients where they are. This incorporates the mandatory use of urinary albumin excretion in the spot urine and estimated GFR. And together, you can see What you need to do as a physician, but the patient will also see what their risk is for not just kidney disease progression, but cardiovascular disease. Obviously, red is bad, green is good, and then there's in between, and the patient needs to know this and know what their risks are. The prediction of CKD is tough, but you need to know where you fit into this, and you can see... Her GFR was 44, so she's stage 3B, and she's got over 300 milligrams of albuminuria, so she's going to be in 3A. So you would say she's stage 3BA3. That's her uh, place in the CKD heat map. So thank you for watching. In the next episode, I'll discuss how to manage our patient's CKD progression. So hello, everybody, and welcome to episode two, where we'll explore therapeutic options for our patient- who has type 2 diabetes and stage 3bA3CKD. As you'll see as we go into this, we're going to be talking about pillars of therapy, similar to what you probably are familiar with in heart failure, but different approaches and different medications. So what are the things we can do in the office to slow kidney disease progression? I'm often asked that by practicing physicians. And there's nothing magical. There are, you need to keep in mind the fundamentals. And the fundamentals are blood pressure control, glucose control, and lipid control in the earlier stages of diabetes and kidney disease. And once the GFR is below 45, it's all just blood pressure and glucose. Lipid control is important for the cardiovascular aspects, but not for the kidney aspects. And specifically, blood pressure control needs to be used with agents that are known to slow kidney disease progression and also have specific effects on blood pressure and or glucose if appropriate. So what are these pillars of therapy? So there are pillars of therapy that have evolved and this is a concept that I've borrowed from our heart failure friends because they have four pillars of therapy in heart failure. So now Nephrologists and primary care physicians have three pillars of therapy that they can depend on to slow progression of kidney disease. RAS blockade, and RAS blockade is critical because that is the fundamental basis of slowing kidney disease progression, but you have to use the doses used in clinical trials. If you're going to use an ACE inhibitor, you have to use the maximal tolerated dose, 20 or 40 milligrams. If you're going to use an ARB, not a problem. Use the maximal dose. There's no reason to use a lower dose. There are no dose-dependent side effects. SGLT2s, here's where you can use the lowest dose, because in all the trials, SGLT2s showed protection with the lowest dose. Non-steroidal MRA, specifically for has been shown a benefit. You can start with 10 milligrams at GFRs less than 60, but if there's no hyperkalemia, then you can progress to 20 milligrams. That's where you get the maximum benefit in terms of slowing progression of kidney disease. Now I encourage everybody to go to either kidney international or diabetes care last year in, I believe it was December and look up the consensus report from the KDGO ADA guideline committees. And this was something I was personally involved with and we looked at all of the management of diabetes and slowing progression of kidney disease. And what we have here are the fundamental basis for everything, lifestyle modification, which is you got to take it seriously, not just lip service because it's very important and has been shown independently to slow progression and then agents. So if you have kidney disease and diabetes, then you have to be on an SGLT2. You can use metformin, that's fine, but you have to be on an SGLT2. And if you have heart failure and um, diabetes, you should be on an SGLT2. Additionally, you need to be on a RAS blocker. And once those therapies are solidified, you have more than 30 milligrams of albuminuria, another reason to check it, you need to be on finerenone or non steroid MRA, because that maximally slows kidney disease progression based on what we have right now. So it's important to look at this paradigm and keep it important when you're managing and not just stop with low-dose ACE or ARB or an SGLT2 and forget about everything else. You need to do it correctly. It's not just presence or absence. So in the next episode, I'm going to discuss how to manage our patients with CVD, but I think it's important that you understand that the components are not just have somebody on an ACE, have somebody in an SGLT2, have somebody on non-serial MRA. It doesn't work like that. You need to use the doses used in the clinical trials because if you don't, you will not get the benefit you think you're getting. Thank you very much, and I'll see you at the next episode. Hello, everybody. Welcome to episode three, where I will discuss how to manage our patients' cardiovascular problems. Again, let me remind you, this is Dora, 51-year-old African-American woman. And what's the approach now? Because we want to prevent heart failure. Remember, in CKD with diabetes, there's a threefold greater risk of heart failure and heart failure hospitalizations than there are in people without CKD. So it's very important that our strategies look at also preventing heart failure hospitalizations. So again, here's Dora with our uh, advanced kidney disease here. I think it's important, first of all, to understand that the three pillars of therapy, the RAS blockers, the SGLT2s, and the MRAs, all cause an initial drop in GFR. So when you start somebody on a RAS blocker and their creatinine goes up, who cares? Not a problem. You should allow up to, and this is in guidelines, you should allow up to a 25 to 30% increase in serum creatinine as long as the potassium doesn't go to 5.5. It will go there and stay there. This is why you should not start all three of these drugs at once, because then you will get a big drop in GFR, bigger than 30%, and then you won't know what to do. So the, the this is the art of using this. So start with the RAS blockers. Let it stabilize for about two weeks. Then you can add an SGLT2. You'll get another rise in creatinine. Maybe not as much, but you'll get one. Again, wait for about one to two weeks, and then you can start finerenone if there's residual albuminuria. That is the way to do it. Then you will get a reduction in progression of kidney disease, and that is maximal cardiovascular cardiorenal protection. Now, there's a reference to this slide, and I encourage you all to read it, because we go into great detail on the clinical trials that support this figure. Many physicians fail to maximize doses of RAS inhibitors because of a rise in creatinine or the potassium going up 0.2, 0.3 milliequivalents. That is inappropriate and unacceptable. That is not guideline-directed therapy. So I'm giving it to you now so you understand that if you take this approach, not only the kidney will benefit, but the heart will benefit. And, of course, if the patient understands that what you're doing and why, they won't call you and say, my creatinine's gone up because they will already expect it. It's very important to have this communication. This is why you have to show the heat map to the patient. And this is what I was talking about earlier, just to show you some data, of threefold greater risk of heart failure in people with kidney disease than as opposed to people without kidney disease. Now, I think it's important when you look at the use of these agents together this is an analysis done in over 13,000 patients on finerenone and it looks at heart failure hospitalizations and you can see very clearly that the combination of SGLT2 with finerenone dramatically reduced heart failure hospitalizations so clearly there's an additive benefit in using these agents together in diabetic patients with CKD so In heart failure, I told you they have four pillars, and theirs are four pillars. Guess what? Two of these pillars are the same as the pillars that you use in kidney disease. And so I just wanted to make the point here that there's an overlap in terms of what's good for the kidney is also good for the heart. So looking at the impact of glucose-lowering therapies in advanced CKD, I think it's important to understand that for the heart Yes, SGLT2s are very important. SGLT2s, by the way, do nothing to lower glucose if your GFR is below 45. That should be very important. So the concept that people have that SGLT2s are glucose-lowering medications, that's true if you have normal kidney function. But if you have advanced kidney disease, they do nothing to lower glucose. Yet, down to a GFR of 20, they still protect the kidney. So the mechanisms are multiple here. And glucose lowering is actually a minor issue in advanced kidney disease because these drugs do nothing to lower glucose, yet they protect the heart and the kidney. So very important concept to understand. Additionally, and this data is true for the heart, we don't have the kidney data yet, GLP-1-RAs are also very beneficial, not for heart failure, but for for atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. In fact, in the diabetes guidelines, GLP-1-RAs are mandated if the patient has diabetes and atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. So again, another option and being tested right now in the FLOW trial to see if these agents also slow progression of kidney disease, the results of which will be out next year. But if this is positive, we'll then have a fourth pillar to slow CKD progression, And reduce cardiovascular disease. So with that in mind, in the next episode, I will discuss what to do to protect our patient's kidney function. Hello, everybody. Welcome to episode four, where we will explore how to protect our patient's kidney function. So again, just let me remind you, we've treated the patient now. Dora comes in two months after her first visit. Now her blood pressure is 136 over 80. Remember, it was 164 over 96. Her EGFR is now 38, remember it was 44 before, and her UACR is 300, remember it was 675 before. Her potassium is reasonable at 4.6. Her current therapy includes maximum doses of a RAS blocker and an SGLT2. So the question is, what are the next step? And the next step here, because she has significant albuminuria, is to add finerenone the non-steroidal MRA at 10 milligrams because her GFR is less than 60 and her potassium is in the normal range. So how do you do this? I've already taught you how to use these three drugs together. You've got two on board. So now you initiate finerenone and you follow the patient at monthly intervals in the beginning. You don't need to follow it any more frequently because potassium changes really were not seen in the clinical trials until the first month. So you start the drug. One month later, you check the potassium. Potassium now has gone from 4.6 to 4.9. Still fine, doing well. Now you increase the dose because everything is fine to 20 milligrams because things are doing well. She comes back a month later and her BP is 132 over 78. Her GFR is 38. And now her UACR has dropped by 50%. To 150 milligrams per gram, and her potassium is stayed at 4.9. You continue to follow her. Four months later, she comes back. Her BP now is 128 over 76. Her GFR is stable at 38. Her albuminuria is further dropped to 80, and now her potassium is right there at 4.9. So very important to know that this is a typical scenario of patients that have this. I've got more than three dozen patients on the triple therapy combination, and this is typically what you see. I think it's important for you to understand where we were and where we are now. In 1980, if you look at progression of kidney disease from diabetes, type 2 diabetes, you can see that we were losing about 10 mLs per minute per year. What does that mean? That means if you came in with normal kidney function, and because we had nothing to slow progression of kidney disease, in 10 to 12 years, you would be on dialysis if you were still alive. We had then had the Captopril trial in 1993, which clearly showed slowing of kidney disease progression. And we had some other smaller trials with other agents that showed the same thing. Clearly, we needed to do more. And we did. In 2001, we had the Urbisartan Losartan studies. RENAL and IDNT, clearly showing us some additional slowing. And now we have the SGLT2s and we have finerenone that if you use them in the way that I am telling you, you will slow progression of kidney disease down to about 2 to 3 mLs per minute per year, which is 80% better than what it was in 1980. Have we normalized kidney function? No. So we still have a ways to go, but we definitely have improved... The stability of kidney function over time. So in the next episode, I'm going to discuss what polypharmacy means for patients with type 2 diabetes and CKD. Thanks for watching. Hello, everybody. Welcome to episode 5, where we'll explore the issue of polypharmacy for patients with type 2 diabetes and CKD. Now, as you know, People with advanced CKD require many medications because the kidney does many things, and we need to balance things out. And so there are a variety of studies here that you're seeing summarized, but if you look at people with CKD stage 3B, so we're not talking about predialysis, but we're talking about stage 3B, you can see that in general, they're requiring about 10 medications, Because there's blood pressure medications, there's glucose medications, and each one of those on average requires two to three medicines. And then, of course, we have lipid lowering and other issues that may be present. So I think the possibility or the potential of a patient taking all of those medicines is pretty low. And you can see here, looking at the outcomes and association of polypharmacy, the more drugs. A patient has to take, the less likely they are to have a good outcome, not only because they're sicker, but because it's very difficult for them to take all these medicines, and many of them require pill boxes, and many of them will have some side effects, so they'll choose what they want to take off and on. So this requires time to explain to the patient why they're taking these medicines, because I'm frequently asked, can't we reduce medications? This is where combination therapy is critical and important. And there have been many, 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 many studies going back to 1996, talking about combination therapies. They're in the guidelines, both in diabetes and for hypertension. And yet, they're not being used. Now, I understand about reimbursement. I understand about these issues. But you can get them approved if you make the argument, because I have. And believe me, it really helps to do this appropriately in patients. Now, I want to give you a little anecdote to make the point about this. I was referred a patient who had hypertension that was difficult to control and had early diabetes. She did not have advanced kidney disease, but she had early kidney disease. She was an attorney and she told me she would not take more than two pills. For reasons that were ridiculous, because she said that if she takes more than two pills, that would mean she was sick. She didn't want to be sick. So that was it. When I finished working with her, she was on two pills. However, she was on four medications. And she was extremely happy. Compliance was great. And that's what you can do. So you can turn these 10 plus pills that patients are taking, potentially into five pills or maybe six. Now, that may not sound like a huge difference, and you're still taking a lot of pills, but it's definitely better than 10. And if you tell the patient that you're going to try to do that, believe me, they're going to work with you to try to make it happen. So I think it's an important aspect to polypharmacy that you need to do. I know it takes time. You need to have the nurse or somebody help you with this, but it definitely can work and does work. So thank you for watching. In the next episode and the last episode, I'll discuss the importance of adherence for patients with CKD and type 2 diabetes. Thank you. Hello again, everybody. Welcome to episode 6, where we will explore how to engage patients with type 2 diabetes and CKD with their care and how to increase adherence. It's very important to have a team-based, coordinated, and integrated management approach to managing these patients so that everybody's on the same page and they're hearing complementary and related messages on what they need to do to control their multiple risk factors and structure the education in self-management to protect kidney function and reduce risk of complications in order to empower the patient to optimal control. Now, this is challenging in some patients, but if you have the uh, dietitian, physician, nurse, and whoever else is involved in the care of this patient on the same page. So obviously this takes some strategy. It is very important to do this. This is per the KDGO guidelines. This is also in the American Diabetes Association guidelines for managing these patients, a team approach. So I think also it's important to keep in mind that at all costs, They cannot get conflicting messages, and they may ask one of the members of the team something that they forgot to ask another member of the team. If that person does not know the answer, they should either get the answer or refer them back to who has the answer, because if they give an answer and then later ask the physician and they give a different answer, then there's going to be some trust issues. So you really need, and that's what this is all about. It's not just effective communication. It's the same message being given by different people to the patient so that they see everybody's on the same page. I think this is an important concept that needs to be carried forward. So thank you for your time. And this was the last of our six episodes, so I hope you found them useful for your practice. Thank you for listening. This has been an activity published by Voice.